Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 238 Form is Emptiness, Emptiness is Evolving. We're joined this week by Zen teacher and author David Loy to discuss the radical implications of modern narratives on the traditional Buddhist view of the world. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn. And I'm joined today over Skype with a very special guest. I'm here today with David Loy. David, thank you again for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist geeks. You're definitely a patron saint of geekhood. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you for the invitation, Vincent. I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. A little bit of background for the Buddhist geeks listeners. You are a professor. Uh, you've taught at multiple places, but uh, currently you're a visiting scholar at Naropa University, and you're That's also right. um, an author of several books. Uh, the most recent is, which has a beautiful title, The World is Made of Stories. And we'll kind of get into a little bit about what you mean by stories and narratives. And then you're also a co-author of another book called A Buddhist Response to the Climate Emergency, which is, a, of course, a really hot hot topic, uh, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. Anyway, maybe just to start off with, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what you're up to right now. Um, I was in Boulder recently. We didn't have a chance to connect, but I understood that you were teaching at Naropa, which is my alma mater, and wondered what you were doing there. Well, actually, I'm not teaching here. The fellowship that I have is, is for research. And as usual, I'm writing another book. <laughs> nice. Uh, which... Uh, Actually, I'm not getting very much done yet, but uh, don't tell anybody. Um, this won't go live. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. It, it's just that moving into Boulder, as we have in the last few months, we're still in the settling in process. Yeah. And there's been lots of other things going on. Anyway, the book that I'm working on has a working title, something like uh, Why Buddhism and the West Need Each Other, What They Are Learning from Each Other. Oh, uh, Another title might be The Great Conversation or The Great Dialogue, really trying to offer an overview of this exciting new co-creation that's going on now that Buddhism is coming to the West. As you know, every time Buddhism has gone to a different culture, it's not only changed that culture, but been changed. There's a real process of interaction and co-creation. And so I think it's appropriate, although it's still very early days, it's appropriate to take a look at exactly what is happening, some of the influence that Buddhism is having, and also some of the ways in which it is itself being challenged. Mm, that's really cool. So is this in some ways mostly like a sociological look at the dialogue or what kinds no, of uh, approaches? No, it, it's, it's more, well, it's a combination of things. For example, there's going to be a chapter on psychology, since that seems to be really one of the major areas where Buddhism is influencing and being influenced, uh, especially psychotherapy. There'll also be a chapter on social engagement. I think that the encounter with the Western tradition, which emphasizes uh, social transformation, is leading to some interesting new developments. There'll be a, a chapter on religious paradigms, how 
alternative conceptions of transcendence in Buddhism are interacting with more traditional Western Abrahamic ones. And, uh, and also a chapter in science may be focusing a lot on evolution, for example, which I know is one of the areas that you're very interested in recently. Yes, that's absolutely right. Cool. So it sounds like you're really taking a kind of broad look at some of the major areas that's really cool. Well, as soon as you get that done, let us know and we'll have another discussion. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, you know, in some ways, that's the focus of Buddhist Geeks is really exploring kind of how Buddhism is converging with all these various facets. So that'd be really great. So before we jump into the main piece that we wanted to explore with you today, which is around modern narratives and especially around this narrative or story of evolution, which is, of course, more than just just a narrative. But we wanted to explore that with you today. And I thought to start with, it's usually interesting and helpful for people to hear a little bit about your background, kind of where you're coming from, what informs your current views. And in particular, I thought it'd be interesting to hear about your experience with Zen. I understand you started practicing Zen in the early 70s and that you spent time in the States and in Japan. So you kind of went back and forth. So it'd be interesting to hear about that. I started around 1971, I think it was, uh, in Hawaii with the Diamond Sangha in Honolulu. At the time I began, I was sort of splitting my my energies and time between hanging out with friends in Waikiki and also spending some time in some remote valleys of uh, one of the minor islands, Molokai. And a friend uh, and I uh, learned about the Zen Center in near the university in the Manoa area of Honolulu. And so we went there. And it turned out that they were just about to have a session, a seven-day session with a visiting Japanese Zen master named Yamada Kowen. They had some spaces available, some seats available. So without really knowing what we were getting into, my friend and I signed up for that session. And, uh, and that was the rather over-the-top, arduous beginning for myself. So I became very deeply involved with the Diamond Sangha and Robert Aiken, who was just beginning to teach. And I practiced there with him and visiting Yamada Kowen from Japan. About four years in Hawaii, and then later, after a little break in the mainland, I ended up going to Asia, teaching at the National University of Singapore for some years, starting a small Zen group there, and then eventually being invited back by the Japanese teacher, Yamada Kowen, to uh, do more intensive practice, koan practice with him in Kamakura. So I, I moved there in about 84, and was one of his main international students at that time. Mm, really interesting. And the tradition that this teacher was in, is that the Sambo Kyoden tradition? Yes, that's, that, that's right. It's actually a fairly new tradition, a combination of Soto and Rinzai, the two main Japanese Zen traditions. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, The Three Pillars of Zen. Yes. This is by Philip Kaplow. Classic. Well, that's the same tradition. Kaplow okay. studied in that. And his teacher, Yasutani was my teacher's teacher. In fact, Yamada was the main successor, the third Dharma, the third spiritual director of the Sambo Kyodan in Kamakura, Japan. It's not terribly well known in Japan, but it has a very large number of international students who come, well, quite a few from Europe, for example, some from America, some from Asia. It's having quite a bit of influence in its own way. I remember reading some stories about Yasutani Roshi, and 
I remember some of the things from him were sort of the intense focus on Kensho, like yeah, such having a, a breakthrough. And then I remember Shikantaza, the way it was described, didn't sound like a whole lot of fun. <laughs> it sounded like pretty <laughs> intense, like sweating bullets while you sit. Could you share a little bit about sort of the characteristics of, of that practice or that approach? Like, what was it like? Mm. Well, Yasutani, uh, like his own teacher, Harada, who started the Sambo Kyodan, he was a Soto priest, but he wasn't able to find a sufficiently enlightened Zen master. So he actually had to turn to the Rinzai tradition to find somebody who could really teach him. It was out of that experience that the Sambo Kyodan, as kind of a merger of the two, occurred. So the focus in Sambo Kyodan is very similar to traditional Rinzai in the sense that there's a great deal of focus on Kensho, a lot of very strict practice working on, usually it's moon, it's the koan moon, what is moon? The Kensho and also the whole koan curriculum that follows after the first experience. So that's to be distinguished from Shikantaza, just sitting, which is what's emphasized in the Soto tradition. That isn't emphasized so much in our lineage, although sometimes people in between koans will do that practice. If they're not working on a particular koan with the teacher at that time, that's one of the practices that's uh, certainly uh, very valid and recommended. Mm. But the focus generally is on the koan tradition and working through that, using that as a device to help open up, realize one's true nature, and then clarify more deeply, more clearly what that true nature is. Mm. How was your experience doing that training? Uh, well, going back to my first experience, it was quite a shock. And neither my friend nor I really knew what we were getting into. So a seven-day session, it wasn't a matter of sitting around chatting and having tea with the Roshi like we expected. It was seven days of hell, hurting back, hurting legs, and most of all, hurting mind, watching those thoughts bounce off the wall and not really uh, having any perspective on that. And it, it was a very shocking and a very disturbing experience for me. To the point where uh, I wondered how I was going crazy. But, but afterwards, something happened, something small. But it certainly gave me the sense that this was the right path, that this is what I need to be doing. So the actual working on Mu can be quite intensive. Uh, that's why it's really important to do in relationship with the teacher and preferably in relationship with the Sangha that are sitting together that can uh, help one. Kind of like a container or something to hold the intensity of it. Exactly, exactly. Mm, very cool. Well, thanks for sharing some of that. It's really interesting, these different approaches and traditions within the Buddhist world. And it's also interesting that there are multiple narratives in the Buddhist world as well. It's not just these different practices and approaches. One of the things that you write a lot about are narratives in Buddhism. And we've obviously, in the Buddhist tradition, inherited a lot of narratives from the Asian traditions, mm -hmm. most of which were formed in sort of pre-modern, pre-industrial, pre-Western right. Enlightenment times. And then now we live in a, in a sort of modern world and we have modern narratives, uh, which are quite different in a lot of ways. But it still seems like in some ways this whole thing hasn't shaken out. There are these different narratives that are kind of meeting, colliding. Um, and one of them that's quite strong in terms of modernity is this topic of evolution, 
uh, which mm-hmm. of course only really started a few hundred years ago, at least in its current form. And I was wondering if you could talk about, from your perspective, because this is something you've explored and written a lot about, um, the significance of this topic of evolution on contemporary Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Well, first, just a little bit about narratives generally. As we said earlier, every time Buddhism goes to a different culture, it, it engages with that culture. It interacts and not only changes, but is changed by that culture. And another way to say that, of course, is that the narratives are intersecting. And what they really end up doing, of course, is creating new narratives or new stories that evolve out of the old ones, but are also something quite different because they're formed in response to other possibilities. So. I mean, really now we're at this point where we can see that so many Buddhist narratives or elements of the Buddhist narratives are are so relevant to us today. But uh, also we have to acknowledge that Buddhist cultures in Asia are, are pre-modern, mostly mythological. And I think we are therefore still in the early days of really trying to distinguish what's basically essential about the Buddhist narrative, about the Buddhist uh, awakening path about the Buddhist transformative process from what's mythological and what needs to maybe be distinguished. In other words, it seems to be the case that because we're a different culture, we're a different civilization, we're eventually going to have to be able to distinguish between what's essential about the narrative from what's culturally conditioned and no longer relevant in our case. One of the interesting issues, though, right now, as Buddhism comes to the West, is that it does give us a different kind of alternative spiritual perspective on the split, the traditional split in the modern West now, between the old Abrahamic Judeo-Christian stories, which frankly, for many people, many educated people, is simply no longer very believable. God in his heaven and so forth. And in response to that, of course, in the modern world, we, we have science, which gives us a very different kind of approach, a very different story, but also seems mired in a kind of, how to say it, science asks certain types of questions, and then it takes the answers, it gets to those questions as the only possible ones. So we're in a situation where there really does seem to be a split between religion understood in a Christian terms and the scientific worldview, which is so different. And one of the ways that falls out, I think, is in terms of how we understand evolution. Obviously, evolution is a huge issue within the Judeo-Christian tradition because it has a very different creation story, doesn't it? Yes. But when you bring in Buddhism, which has no problem with evolution. In fact, evolution seems to fit in so well with Buddhist principles of impermanence and insubstantiality and interdependence. It seems to fit in very well. But also, evolution does seem to give us something of a different perspective on the Buddhist understanding of the world. For example, in the Mahayana tradition, there's this claim in some places that when the Buddha became enlightened, uh, the whole universe became enlightened which is quite an intriguing thing to say, can we understand the evolutionary process as, not just in mythological terms, but as part of this broad sweep of evolution, whereby the cosmos is struggling to become self-aware? My own 
desire, my own urge to become awakening, from the other side, can that be understood as the urge of the cosmos itself to wake up in me, as me, through me? There's all these interesting possibilities. It would seem as if this can give us a new narrative, a new, more scientifically compatible narrative that helps to make sense of what's going on with the Buddhist process of, of awakening. And that's very exciting. One of the reasons it's so exciting, of course, is that it would seem to point the way to help overcome this unfortunate duality within the Western tradition, whereas on the one hand you have a fundamental predominant religious paradigm that just doesn't work anymore versus the scientific approach, which tends to be very materialistic and reductionistic. And then if we come in with something like Buddhism, then we have a totally new story, a totally new narrative about what's going on in our lives, what it means to be human, what the possibilities of being human are. And uh, I think this is very, very exciting. This is one of the really most exciting and creative places in which the Western tradition, in this case, science, cosmology, evolution, seems to be interacting with what the Buddhist tradition has to offer. Mm, that's so beautiful. I think you just opened up a really interesting area to explore now because you spoke about awakening in terms of the universe sort of awakening in some sense to itself, to discovering itself. Mm. It sort of reminded me of some of the things that Carl Sagan said in the intro to his cosmos, except of course, I don't think he really had a, a deep uh, interior practice. He was sort of looking at it from a scientific perspective, almost purely. That said, does that change that view? Does that change what we're awakening to? Does that change the awakening process itself when you reframe it that way? Well, if it reframes it, it may be in a positive sense in the way that it sort of overcomes some of the mythological overlay. One common way of trying to articulate awakening is to talk in terms of realization of emptiness. I think it's generally agreed that the awakening involves letting go of the sense of self, realizing that the sense of self is not the source of our thoughts and feelings, but in fact, the sense of self is itself a kind of psychological construct of the way that mostly habitual ways of thinking, feeling, acting, and so forth interact. And so getting beyond the sense of self opens us up to deeper levels of awareness. But the interesting thing about those is those aren't something that one grasps or understands. The point of emptiness is that there's something deeper than ourselves, deeper than our sense of self that's acting through us or takes form. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Takes form as us. You remember the old Heart Sutra saying, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. The old Buddhist challenge, if there's no self, then who becomes enlightened, who becomes awakened? In a way, I think the realization that the thoughts spring up, the actions spring up from some much deeper level I think this is, in fact, quite compatible with a claim of the sort that, you know, it's the cosmos itself that's waking up. In other words, one way to articulate the realization process is to realize that that same emptiness, if you want to use that term, that, that takes forms as rocks and trees and grass and giraffes and so forth, also takes form as me, you and me. In particular, it takes form as the thoughts and the feelings that arise that 
there's the same fundamental, ungraspable emptiness that is manifesting in all of these different ways. And what's exciting is I think this does involve a more dynamic understanding of emptiness than has sometimes been held within the Buddhist tradition. But it also is very compatible with this realization that the universe, the cosmos, is fundamentally creative. It's fundamentally this stuff constantly taking new form. And uh, we're one of those forms. And what's exciting about us is that we, we're not only creatures or creations of this emptiness, but that we, we seem to have a special function, a special ability, because with us, this emptiness in becoming self-aware, look at it this way. If the emptiness wants to create a, a symphony or a cathedral or a computer, well, it has to go through human beings. It's as if with us, new types of species become possible. Very interesting. And, you know, uh, some of what I hear and what you're saying that seems very different from some of the traditional Buddhist narratives, for instance, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for instance, yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I want to maybe tease out some of the implications of this because they seem huge to me. I could be wrong, but some of the traditional narratives, my understanding, like in classical Buddhism, the understanding of the universe seems to be more that it's cyclical and that we're just going through cycle after cycle. And in a certain sense, we're trying to wake up from that cycle. There's not a, necessarily a sense that things are getting better or more complex as with mm. the evolutionary narrative, um, which seems to me to be a radically different statement about mm. what awakening is. I wonder if you could comment on that. Sure. Well, two things. First of all, it's interesting that some of the latest and most sophisticated cosmology is now somewhat reinterpreting the Big Bang. It, the inflation theory, for example, which has become very important in the last decade or two, is talking about a new kind of inflation of the universe, which understands the cosmos as not just being one expanding ball of fire, the Big Bang, but that there's something fractal about it that it consists of many inflating balls that produce new balls, which in turn produce new balls ad infinitum. So from this perspective, it's more of a series of ever-produced cycles, self-reproducing cycles, some of which come to an end but then create new cycles. And in some ways, maybe that fits in with traditional Indian cosmology better than a more linear Abrahamic notion that it all begins at one time and then might end at another time in the future. But the more important point that you're touching on is about this tension between the notion of evolutionary theory, which emphasizes increasing complexity and increasing consciousness, versus the realization within the Buddhist tradition, the realization of your true nature. One way of saying it is that it, the emptiness doesn't get better or worse. It's not a matter of something that's trapped in time, but rather that seems to give us some insight into that which is outside of time, outside of samsaric cycles. I don't think that's consistent with this new evolutionary understanding. From the perspective of the emptiness itself, the creative, formless shunyata, it's definitely the case that there's no matter of getting better or getting worse. It remains the same creative principle. But if you look at it in terms of the forms that this creative principle is taking, that's where you can see a developmental or evolutionary um, uh, model, an evolutionary progression. 
What I'm getting at is if you go back to the old metaphor of uh, sea and waves or ocean and waves, in terms of the ocean, in terms of the fundamental creative ground, I guess we could even call it kind of a groundless ground, that which is constantly taking form. From that perspective, there is no getting better, there's no worse, there's nothing to gain or lose. But if you simply look in terms of the forms and the way in which the forms have been developing for the last, well, 14 billion years that we're aware of, then definitely there are some pretty phenomenal changes. And I think we need to try to understand what's going on with that. So the realization of our true nature doesn't do anything to our true nature in the sense that it doesn't make it better or worse. But nonetheless, there is a kind of a developmental process going on at the same time. So there's two sides to it, two sides of the coin, whether you're looking at the form is emptiness or whether you're looking at the emptiness is form. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.